to this week's episode of The Knowing Heart. So, the title of this week's lecture is The Peaceful Battle. The subtitle is Embracing That Either Everyone Wins or Everyone Loses. Okay, so as always, we're going to start with a modern-day issue. Um, you know, all the teachings, as mystical as they get, their primary purpose is to be practical and to be relevant to us today in changing our paradigms, our feelings, and how we live our life. So the modern-day issue is peaceful victory. King David in Psalms Chapter 55, verse 19 states, and I quote, He redeemed my soul with peace from the battle that came upon me because of the many people who were with me. Now, King David is speaking of how God has redeemed him from the hands of his son Absalom, who revolted against his father, seek to murder his father, and to become king of the Jewish people. The story is told in the book Samuel 2, chapter 15, and can be read in brief here, and I post a link, and I also posted a link in the notes description to this video. You'll be able to open up, download, print my notes, and there you'll have links, and you'll be able to do the research. In the teachings of Hasidus, the main emphasis is placed in this verse upon the words with peace, that the redemption was acquired peacefully, and that it was so because of many people who were with me, meaning that even Absalom's men were praying and wanting for King David's victory. The deeper lesson of the verse hence becomes that the ultimate victory is through peace, in which there is a total transformation of the enemy. The ultimate form of victory is not through subduing, squashing, or eradicating the enemy, but rather through the transformation of the enemy, in which the enemy now becomes, quote from the verse, were with me. This becomes our practical modern-day issue of this lecture. How can we acquire a peaceful redemption from our enemy within ourselves, within us, our own enemy? You know, there was a famous uh, cartoon called Pogo, and the famous line of that cartoon is, We have found the enemy, and it is us. And from the enemy outside of ourselves, by transforming the enemy from the inside out. How do we do this in our lives, practically speaking? The lecture based primarily on a mimer, a mystical discourse of the Rebbe of Blessed Memory delivered on this Saturday night in 1969, which is based upon the mimer, the mystical teaching the Rebbe delivered earlier that day, clarifying points explained and concepts of the last mimer, which was last week's lecture. Hence, I am posting a link, again, you'll print up my notes, you'll see the link, to the previous lecture. Please take a moment to refresh your memory. For while this lecture absolutely stands on its own, much of its wealth would go unnoticed without last week's lecture. Okay, introductions. The 19th of Kislev. So, this Shabbat is the 19th of Kislev. And so it was in 1969. So the reason the Rebbe had a second Fabrengen on Saturday night, besides the Fabrengen on Saturday afternoon, was in honor of the holiday Yutet Kislev, the day on which Rabbi Shneir Zalman of Liadi, the Alter Rebbe, founder of Chabad Lubavitch, was released from the Tsar's prison, and an entire new dimension of Chabad Hasidus began in its ultimate pursuit of spreading the wellsprings. Now, outward. Now, concerning his redemption from prison, the Alter Rebbe wrote to his in-law, the, the Mechutten, we call it, the person who their children married, Rabbi Levi Yitzhak of Bardichev. And he wrote like this, This indeed must be made known, 
that on the day God made for us the 19th of Kislev, and he goes on to explain the day, while I was reading in the book of Psalms the verse, he redeemed my soul in peace before beginning the following verse, I emerged in peace by the act of the God of peace. Hence, the Alter Rebbe is telling us that the spiritual victory of the teachings of Hasidus and its entire new dimension are connected to the peaceful redemption of the transformation of the enemy. Thus, let us understand what the post Yutet Kislev, 19th of Kislev, new dimension of the teachings and dissemination of Hasidus is and its specific connection that it has with the peaceful redemption of transformation. Now, we're going to go to the next introduction. Then, there is the Talmudic twist in the Tatractic Brachot upon this verse that we need to explore as well. The twist here is that the Talmud explains this verse as not King David talking of his redemption from the hands of Absalom, but they translate this verse as God talking to each and every one of us and asking us to redeem him, God, and ourselves from exile. Let me quote to you what that little piece of Talmud says. It is written, He redeemed my soul with peace from the battle that came upon me because of the many people who were with me. Rabbi Natan interprets this not as King David speaking about himself, but as God speaking to Israel. The Holy One, blessed be He, says, Anyone who engages in Torah study and in acts of kindness and prays with the congregation, I ascribe to him credit as if he redeemed me and my children from among the nations of the world. So we talk here about three specific forms of service. Torah study, acts of kindness, and praying with the congregation. Thus, we now see that, one, the ultimate redemption, which will bring about the fulfillment of the purpose of creation when Mashiach comes, is connected as well with this redemption of peace through transformation. That's what God is saying. Redeem me and my children from exile. And number two, this transformation is brought about through Torah study, acts of kindness, and prayer, which are each about bringing peace. Okay, how do we see that these three things are peace services? Well, number one, concerning Torah study, it states, King Solomon says in Proverbs, its ways are ways of pleasantness, and all its paths are peace. So studying Torah becomes, makes you to become a peaceful person. Concerning acts of kindness, so here our sages explain, Rashi, for through his doing kindness with his body, physical kindness, to his friend, he recognizes, the other person recognizes that he is loved and comes to brotherhood and peace. Okay, so that's a peace service. The last one, and concerning prayer, the Talmud does not say, he who prays, but rather it says praise with the congregation, in which people join in prayer with him, an act of peace and unity. Nevertheless, let us understand the deeper mystical dimension of why the redemption of peace through transformation of the enemy is specifically through these three services of Torah study, acts of kindness, and prayer with the congregation. One more introduction. Redemption of sin. Now the word redemption carries the connotation that there was a time before the exile and that the redeemed is being returned to the state he was in before the exile. How does this apply to God when God says, redeem me from exile? What was the state of being for God before exile? What does it mean he's in exile? And what are we redeeming him back to that original state where there was no exile. So, King Solomon states in the book Song of Songs, I have come to my garden, Bati Legani, which is referring to God coming to earth through the holy temple. Now, that means 
by King Solomon building for God the holy temple, God came to his garden, came back to earth. The fact that the verse states, to my garden, telling us that earth was God's garden and residence before this Bati I have come, and that now God is coming back. Hence, our sages teach us, and they quote the verse, come to my garden. Rabbi Menachem, the son-in-law of Rabbi Lezer ben Avuna, said in the name of Rabbi Shimon, the son of Yosena. What did he say? It doesn't say to a garden, rather to my garden, my original garden, the place that I mainly dwelled originally. End of quote from the Medrash, the sages teaching on this verse. And our sages say, now let's go to another teaching when we talk about the sin of the tree of knowledge. And here I quote, it's a little bit of a longer piece because I'm going I'm to read the entire list to you. But very interesting. And they, Adam and Eve, after they ate from the forbidden tree of knowledge, heard the sound of God moving about in the garden. Now, the word for moving about, it doesn't say they saw God coming, but rather it says mehalech, which implies jumping and rising. I'm quoting to you the Medrash. The Shechina, the divine presence, God, was originally in the lower worlds, but when Adam sinned, it left to, from the earth to the first heaven. When Cain sinned, it left to the second heaven, in the generation of Enosh to the third, when they created idol worship, in the generation of the flood to the fourth, when there was the immorality, in the generation of the Tower of Babel, when they rebelled against God, God moved from the fourth to the fifth, in the generation of Sodom, where there was real immorality, God moved to the sixth, and in the generation of the Egyptians to the seventh. We're talking about Pharaoh and what he did. Then, I continue with the quote from the Medrash. Then seven righteous men arose corresponding to it. Now, what does that mean? Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Levi, Kahat, Amram, and Moses. Abraham brought it down to the sixth, from the seventh to the sixth. Isaac brought it down from the sixth to the fifth. Jacob brought it down from the fifth to the fourth. Levi brought it down from the fourth to the third heaven. Kahat brought it down from the third heaven to the second heaven. Amram brought it down from the second heaven to the first heaven. And then Amram's son, Moses, brought it down from above to below, from heaven to earth. Rabbi Yitzchak said, It is written, The righteous will inherit the land and rest forever on it. Now what does that mean? Is the wicked floating in the air? What does it mean that the righteous walk upon the earth? They dwell. Where do the wicked dwell? So rather he gives a deeper interpretation. Rather the intent, the intent of the verse is that the wicked do not cause the Shekhinah, God's presence, to dwell on the land. So when it says the righteous will inherit the land, what it means is they will draw God down upon the land. End of the quote from the teaching of the Medrash. From this we know that one, the primary dwelling of God before, before Adam sinned, meaning where the essence, primary of God, dwelled specifically in the physical realm on earth. Number two, it was sin that caused God to leave. And that three, the way to bring the essence of God, hence the Talmudic teaching on the verse, redeemed me and my children from among the nations of the world is through building a physical tabernacle like Moses did, which later morphed into the holy temple built by King Solomon out of physical materials. So it's not about being on a mountaintop, abstinence and meditation. It's primarily about physical action. So here we see a fact that God's primary dwelling place is on the physical earth. It was that way before sin, and it will be that way when, when Mashiach comes. So now we understand what it means that God's in exile, means that God was banished by sin from his primary residence here on earth, and God is asking us to redeem him and bring him back.
but we do not understand the how and the why of it. How can the finite physical earth be able to contain God when even the highest spiritual realms cannot? Hence King Solomon asks, after building the holy temple in the book of Kings 1, chapter 8, But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, the heaven and the heaven of heavens cannot contain you, capital Y, much less this temple that I have erected. So here is the question. How can it be that the physical, finite, coarse, opaque is specifically the only place in the universe which can contain God and become God's primary abode? Important to note that we are not speaking of the physical being only a vehicle through which divinity flows, as fingers through which the intellect flows into the written word. But we are speaking of the earth becoming as a vessel in which divinity clothes itself and bonds with, as the physical brain in which the intellect bonds with the neurosynaptic connections, crevices, and the likes. Okay, how and why? A next introduction, a space beyond space. Another introduction is something that we explored in great length in our last lecture. The definition of finite in Kabbalah is space and time. Here we're going to focus on space. While infinite is that which omnipresent, and even more so, not only is it everywhere, but it exists beyond space altogether. And so too, parenthetically speaking, is eternal, has no beginning nor end, and even more so exists beyond time altogether. Now, God told Moses when Moses asked God, show me your face, and God said to him, behold, there is a place with me, and God goes on to say, I will place you in that crevice of the rock, and when I pass, I will uncover, and then you will see my back, my face you will not see. The words we're focusing on is, Behold, there is a place with me. And upon this verse, our sages teach, My place is subordinate to me, and I am not subordinate to my place. Now, the mystical meaning behind this statement, what does that mean? That God has a place with him, and the place is subordinate to him. So, the mystical meaning behind the statement of place being subordinate to God, is that the finite space itself, as it is finite, becomes so transparent and nullified, subordinate to God, that the space becomes a vessel for beyond space. The phenomenon physically took place in the Holy Temple, in the Holy of Holies, concerning the Holy Ark, the Ark of the Covenant. The Holy of Holies was a room that was 10 by 10 cubits. A cubit is about 18 inches. While the Holy Ark was 2.5 by 1.5 cubits. Hence, once the Holy Ark was placed in the Holy of Holies, the measurement should have been space of 3.25, Ark 2.5, space of 3.25. In the other direction, it should have been for space of 4.25 plus the width of the arc 1.5 and another space of 4.25 and all of this would equal in each direction 10. However, the actual measurements when they physically measured it was space of 5, 2 by 2.5 and 5. It was 5, 1 by 1.5 and 5. So that would equal 12 and a half by 11 and a half. And nevertheless, when they measured the holy temple from wall to wall, it remained 10 by 10. That is a miraculous phenomenon that we cannot wrap our head around. Hence, our sages teach us, and I quote to you from the Talmud, that even though the Holy Ark was of a measurement, it was two and a half by one and a half, specifically, otherwise it was not kosher. Nevertheless, miraculously, and I quote to you from the Talmud, Rabbi Levi says, This matter is a tradition we received from our ancestors. What was the tradition? 
The place of the Ark of the Covenant is not in the measurement. Why? Why did this miracle take place? Because this is because the space of the Holy and Holies and of the Holy Ark were, and I quote again, my place is subordinate to me. And hence the finite space became absolutely nullified and transparent, housing the phenomenon of beyond space of God. This is the fulfillment of the purpose of creation, of which our sages state, the purpose for which this world was created is that the Holy One, blessed be He, desired to have an abode in the lower realms, meaning that the beyond space and time, essence of God is actually dwelling in the physical finite space and time of the world. Now, I want to just add on my own little clarity to what we just understood about space and beyond space. I don't even want to use the word understood because can we ever wrap our head around that? But rather, I want to just, you know, what we just learned, what we just heard. I want to add clarity with a concept mentioned in the Talmud, which has nothing to do with this teaching, but I think it'll give us a tangible understanding of the phenomenon that cannot be understood. In Brachot, it says concerning, and I quote to you, an elephant going through the eye of a needle in a dream. Now, the point of this teaching is about an elephant the size of an elephant passing through an eye of a needle the size of an eye of a needle. Now, take a moment while we're studying here and try to envision this with your conscious mind. The ego of the mind's understanding of reality will have to either shrink the elephant or enlarge the eye of the needle. You cannot imagine with your conscious mind how an elephant the size of an elephant can pass through the eye of a needle the size of an eye of a needle. However, by simply strongly thinking of the impossibility of an elephant going through the eye of a needle, while we are awake, we can create that we should actually see this happen in a dream. And I have a link which is going to take you to a letter of the Rebbe of Blessed Memory where he talks about this. So the Talmud there is talking about how what we think by day is what we dream at night. Now, even though the Talmud is saying that on its own one could never dream such a dream which cannot exist in our realm, but by thinking about it during the day and thinking about how impossible this is, is enough to then later create a dream in which you will actually see the impossible. The elephant the size of an elephant passing through the eye of a needle the size of an eye of a needle. Now, why am I bringing this Talmudic here? It's because by the dream, why can you see it in a dream? It's only because the arrogance of the finite mind's ego hold on reality loosens when we sleep. So too, we are speaking here of the Holy of Holies being the size of the Holy of Holies, 10 by 10. And the Holy Ark being the size of the Holy Ark, 2.5 by 1.5. And here the physical realm of space is absolutely subordinate to God. And the Holy Ark takes up no space of the Holy of Holies, which is now housing the beyond space. And now, let us begin the lecture. So, as always, I'm going to give you a list of kind of mystical Hasidic concepts that we're going to explore briefly before we can understand the entire picture and understand how we in our lives can become the peaceful warrior having only peaceful battles, transforming our inner enemy and our external enemy into friends. Number one, one versus only. Number two, physical space versus spiritual space. Number three, King Solomon versus King David. Number four, the three-pronged sacrificial offering. And then lastly, Pada Shalom the peaceful redemption 
and the 19th of Kislev. And let the amazement of Hasidus begin. One verse is only. In the opening verse of the Shema, we read, Hear, O Israel, God is our Lord, God is one, Echad. Now, being that this verse is the ultimate declaration of faith, hence the verse should have better used the word Yachid, not Echad. Yachid means alone, only, proclaiming God as the only God, rather than using the word Echad, one, which leaves room for us to say that there is a two and a three. Nevertheless, the Declaration of Faith specifically uses the word Echad, one, which leaves room for multiplicity and complexity. To emphasize, why is the verse doing this? To emphasize that even in the realm of space, multiplicity, many, separation, God is one. This is the same concept of, my place is subordinate to me. God doesn't say, I have no place. He says, I have a place. And the place is defined by the parameters of space. And nevertheless, it is subordinate to me. That's the concept of Echad. There is multiplicity. There is many. There is separation. But they are all subordinate and permeated with one. God is one. Now, let us understand once this, what this means. And to understand this, I want to share with you a Talmudic teaching and a code of Jewish law ruling upon what we should meditate when we say the word Echad in Shema. And therefore, you may have noticed in synagogue, people will say, Shema Yisrael Hashem Hashem Echad. You'll also notice, if you look at a Chabadnik, that we follow the Kabbalistic custom that when we say Echad, we move our head, right? Right, left, front, back, up, down. Now, let us understand where this comes from. The Talmud in Tractic Brachot, which talks about the laws of Shema, says that the mitzvah of this decoration is, and I quote, Once you have crowned him, God, in your thoughts, over everything above in heaven and below on earth, and in the four corners of the earth, you need not extend in length of thought any further. Mission accomplished. And so too, in the laws of Shema we are taught, it is necessary to extend the pronunciation of the Chet. Echad. That's what we do. Now, the Chet has a numerical value of 8. Why? In order to, not why it has numerical value, why should we prolong it? In order that we should have time in our mind to make the Holy One, blessed be He, sovereign in the heavens. Now, what does that have to do with eight? Because there are seven heavens, and I post a link where you can learn about how seven heavens exist in Judaism. And then there is one earth. Seven plus one is eight. And then, not only that, but you should also prolong the next letter, Dalid. Echad. Now, why? Because the numerical value of Dalid is 4. And therefore, we need to prolong the pronunciation of the Talid until in our mind we can have to think that the Holy One, blessed be He, is unique in His world and rules in the 4, the numerical value of Dalid, directions of the world. Okay, end quote. So, the three letters of the word Echad stands for Aleph, numerical value 1, is God. To which Ches, numerical value 8, seven heavens, one earth, and the Dalit, numerical value 4, the four directions, are all subordinate to the Aleph. And that's what we're doing when we say Echad. Now, hence we see that the ultimate sovereignty of God is expressed when it has a place of finite boundaries, description, and multiplicity. And this place is absolutely transparent and subordinate to God. Now, let's understand this. According to Kabbalah, that we're going to talk about the difference between physical space and spiritual space. According to Kabbalah, physical place, space is sourced within spiritual space. 
However, spiritual space is not as we physically understand space. We define space as here and there, while spiritually space is defined as above and below, in which one dimension is either above or below another dimension. Thus, spiritual space is defined by the six emotion emanations, which are also called the six directions, east, west, above, below, north, south, that makes up a three-dimensional space. So too, these six emotion emanations are called in the Zohar, supernal days, yamin ilain. Now, this is the source of physical time, spiritually defined as below and after, below, before and after, I'm sorry. Now, hence, the Zohar teaches us on the verse in Exodus, we actually this is where we have the, the, um, the Ten Commandments talking about Shabbat. So, for six days God made the heaven and the earth. It says, why should we keep Shabbat? For six days God made the heaven and the earth. Now, this, the sages teach us on the verse, for six days God made the heaven and the earth. It does not say, Bacheshet, for in six days. Rather, it says, six days God made, teaching us, according to the Zohar, that God created the world through and from the six days themselves, which refer to the six supernal days of the six emotion emanations, which are the six directions. Hence, we have that the concept of time and space physically is sourced in time and space spiritually, which are the six emanations in heaven. Now, concerning the spiritual space, the meaning behind the teaching of my place is subordinate to me is the mystical meaning behind the verse in Chronicles that says, Lecha Hashem Hagdula, yours, O Lord, are the greatness and the might and the glory, and it goes to list all the six emotion emanations. Now, what does it mean yours is? Lecha to you. So, the teaching here in Kabbalah is not that God has them, but rather, even as they exist in the great emanations of divinity and ray infinite light in the heavens, nevertheless, that each of the six emo emotion emanations, greatness, revelation, love, might, justice, all, fear, glory, splendor, and compassion, and so on, are each yours. What does it mean, yours? Completely subordinate to you. Now, on the physical level of physical of the of the space, physical space, we previously explained this concerning the holy of holies and the holy of ark. Right? We spoke about how space is subordinate to beyond space. What we need to understand now is the superiority of the my place is subordinate to me which lies specifically in the physical space over how it lies in the spiritual space. There is a superiority of what happens in the physical world when it's subordinate to God even more than what happens in the spiritual world when there's subordination to God. Let's understand this. The superiority of the subordinate to me of the physical space over the spiritual space expresses itself in both aspects, in the space itself and in the subordination to me, capital M, God. One, space. Spiritual space is not the definition of the full dimension of separation, opaqueness, and arrogance of having my space. Rather, spiritual space is but a source to the full-blown separation paradigm of space, which exists only in the realm of the physical space. So from the perspective of space, the depth of reality and truism of space, and all its arrogance, my space, here's where I am, you go there, don't be on my side of the street, that exists only in the physical. Now let's talk about the subordination to God. The ultimate subordination is when neither the intellect nor the emotions of the subordinate one 
neither understands nor appreciates the greatness of the one he is being subordinate to. And hence his subordination is not about his own paradigm or feelings of the person telling him to subordinate himself to that person for his greatness, but rather it is only about the one he is subordinate to. Let's understand this. The spiritual realms and the spiritual space perceive and appreciate the infinite superiority and greatness of the infinite light. And therefore, their subordination to the infinite light is driven by their own intelligence and emotions. However, the depths of the coarseness and opaqueness of the physical realm and their physical space is so deep that it entertains atheism and with the belief that the universe made itself. Hence, the obedient subordination of the coarse physical space is the truest and most precious subordination of all in the eyes of God. So we simply understand that the angels being subordinate to God does not create the depth of pleasure because it isn't the depth of true obedient subordination. It's built on the angel's perception and appreciation of the greatness of God. But when you and I, having a bad hair day, or a bad beard day, and we don't want to, we don't want to stop and pray, and, 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 and we do it, we force ourselves to do it, we have no appreciation as to why. And as to who God is and what God's greatness is, we only know that God exists. And we choose to force ourselves to be a subordinate to God. That is the depths of subordination and creates the greatest pleasure to God. And as we explained earlier, it is not the physical, it's not that the physical space ceases to be a physical space. I go on with my life with all my physical needs with all its properties, but rather it is the omnipotent experience of space as it is space, housing beyond space as it is beyond space. And this is brought about only because of the truest absolute subordination of the absolute opaque and coarse physical space. This subordination reaches into the very essence of God himself, where space and beyond space both equally exist. Now let's go to King Solomon versus King David. And with this we can understand why God told King David, and mind you, building a holy temple for God was King David's idea. And who prepared everything for the building? King David. And nevertheless, God tells him in the book Kings, chapter 8 again, Nevertheless, you shall not build a house, but your son that shall come forth out of your loins, he shall build the house for my name. Why? Because in Chronicles, the verse says, it goes on to give us the other part of the conversation. You, King David, have shed much blood and you have waged great wars. You shall not build a house in my name because you have shed much blood to the ground before me. Behold, a son will be born to you. He will be a man of peace, and I shall give him peace for all his, from all his enemies around and about. For Solomon, the word Solomon means from the word shalom, peace, will be his name, and I shall give peace and quiet to Israel in his days. He shall build a house in my name. Okay, let's understand something. King David spilled no blood in vain but only in wars protecting the Jewish people and the land of Israel from its enemies. King David did not sin with bloodshed. Hence, why should he not be allowed to fulfill his inspiration, it was his idea and desire to build and to move God from a tent into a holy temple in Jerusalem? Now that we understand that the truest dwelling place of God is not where the coarseness and opaqueness of the physical, the physical realm is eliminated, but rather where it is transformed and brought into a peaceful unity and oneness 
between the space and the beyond space, we now understand that the holy temple needs to be made by a man of peace. As the verse of peace states, Oseh Shalom bin Ramav, right? Then there's the part of the verse, He, God, makes peace in His heights. Heights means heaven. And the reason why peace needs to be made in heaven is because the Hebrew word for heaven is Shamayim. Now, they divide this word into two words, Eish Umayim, water and fire. Water mystically represents the angel Michael, which is the angel of kindness. Fire represents angel Gabriel, which is the angel of justice. Now, being that the heaven is made up of these two, and they are polar opposites, therefore peace must be made between them. And who can make this peace? Only God Himself. Why? Because by God, kindness and justice equally exist. They're both equal expressions of God. Hence, He can bring them together. Thus, God is telling King David that, the, that His service of refinement, through war is a necessary prelude to creating a physical dwelling abode for God. However, it is only through Solomon's service of peaceful transformation through which the physical dwelling abode of God, in which there is unity of space and beyond space, can be built. Let's go to the next concept, the three-pronged sacrificial offering. So, what is it about the holy temple that drew this great transformation of physical space, reached up to the essence of God Himself, which then transformed space into being able to house beyond space, becoming a physical dwelling place for God? Now, I want to just stop here for a moment, and I want for us together just to appreciate the phenomenon that there exists physical holy things. Now that seems to be an oxymoron. How can something physical be holy? And this has huge legal ramifications because if some, someone willfully contaminates that which is holy, it's punishable. So just to understand what we're talking about here, the same gold bricks and then whatever was used to build the temple is built, it was is used to build palaces and houses. So what makes this gold and this some bricks or whatever, what makes this physical item holy? What service can do that? What service can truly connect space, physicality, with beyond space, holiness? So we need to understand even more so, being that the desire of God is that His dwelling place be done through our physical service to God. God does not want angels to build Him a temple. And He doesn't want us to build Him spiritual meditative temples. He wants us to physically do acts which will turn this jungle of a world into my garden, my dwelling place. So what service, let's zoom into what service, specific service was done in the Holy Temple that brought this about. Now, the primary service of the Holy Temple was the animal sacrificial offerings upon the altar to be consumed by the heavenly fire upon the altar. Now, the animal, while it has fallen lower than the human in this world, However, interesting to know, in the spiritual realm, the animal is from a higher source than the human. I again connect you a link. I tell you to go to last week's lecture where it is explained in, in greater depth. And, and you, we can really wrap our heads around it. Now, what happens is that in Ezekiel's prophecy, the opening chapter of the book of Ezekiel, where he prophesizes of his vision of the chariot, meaning the throne of God. I want to just quote you one verse from there. And the face of a lion was on the right, the face of an ox to the left, and the face of an eagle. And then it says, and above the expanse there was, that was over their head, there was like the appearance of a sapphire stone, was the likeness of a throne, which carried 
and even lifted the throne. What does that mean, which carried and even lifted the throne? These animals that he saw were the ones that lifted the throne, right? Carried the throne and lifted it. So you see that the source of animals from the lion comes all of the chayot, the wild beast. From the ox comes all the domesticated animals. And from the eagle comes all fowl. So their source is in the throne of God, not just in the throne of God, but it is what carries and lifts up the throne of God with that image of a likeness of a man, which he talks about, which was on top of the, the throne. So what is going on here is that the source of animals are far greater than the source of the human beings. However, because there was a shattering and they fell this pieces, sparks, fell into this world, they fell lower than where the human source of his soul comes from. Now, the sacrificial offerings had three parts to it. So that just explains why the sacrifice has to do with animals. Now, there's three parts of it. The Kohanim, the priest, at their service. The Levites were standing on the platform with instruments and singing. And the Israelites at their watches, they represented the Jewish people and, and there was 24 different groups of people which with their watch, they would be dedicated to the work of the temple, the studies and so forth and so on, to what was going on in the temple. Now, on a mystical level, this refers to the three necessary parts of the procedure of creating the novelty of self-nullification of the physical and its transformation. The Kohen part represents the prelude of drawing down the spiritual empowerment for being able to then perform the transformation of the physical sacrifices into a spiritual experience. You can't just wake up in the morning, have yourself a cup of cereal, and then a cup of coffee and a bowl of cereal. Okay, let's go ahead and transform physical into spiritual. We need to have power for this. So therefore what the Kohen does is he draws down the spiritual empowerment to then go to part two which is the Levi. What's the Levi's voice, job? To Zohar says the Levi raises up with song. Thus his part is the actual transformation and elevation from the below to above. And then what's the Israelites' job? They then drew down the essence of God, which was touched by the physical transformation into the physical realm to permeate our entire physical lives. So the sacrifice in the Holy Temple later influenced each and every Jew wherever they were living to live a more spiritual life. Now, today we have our prayers in the place of our sacrifices. And therefore our prayers need to have all these three elements as well. So let's see how that happens. The Cohen's part is... Like it says in, in the verse, I will see your face with tzedek. Now, tzedek is righteousness. However, you're going to see that the Talmud connects it to the word tzedakah, charity. And therefore, the sages rule, the Talmud in Baba Batra says, Rabbi Eliezer would first give a peruta, a coin, to a poor person, and only then would he pray. He said, as it is written, I will behold your face through charity. Said that. So we see that the Cohen's job is to empower. Rabbi Eliezer taught us what does this mean? That you give charity before you pray, and that empowers your prayer to accomplish the transformation it needs to accomplish. The Levite service represents the prayer itself. As I mentioned to you from the Zohar, that the job of the Levite is to raise up his voice and to sing. So we have the concentrative, meditative, verbal prayer in which we transform the desire of our heart for self-physical pleasure and self-physical love to love for God. And the Israelite service represents the post-prayer Torah study. As our sages teach, I quote you from the Talmud, Rabbi Levi Bar Chia said, One who leaves the synagogue, place of prayer, 
and immediately enters the study hall and engages in Torah study is privileged to proceed to receive the divine presence as it is stated they go from strength to strength every one of them appears before God in Zion so when you go from strength prayer to strength Torah study you end up that you have the appearance of God in Zion in Zion now and the verse states in Leviticus if you follow my statutes, and I put a note there, which Rashi says he proves that this is talking about working diligently on Torah study. Then, the verse goes on to say, I will give you rains in their time. And it goes on and on those verses. So this includes all the other physical blessings mentioned in these verses. How? How do we have physical blessings from God? Through Torah study. So, and nevertheless, as explained before, in the superiority of the physical subordination over the spiritual subordination, so too the physical animal sacrifice in the times of the Holy Temple is a superior transformation than the spiritual transformation of prayer. But today, we only have it as prayer, and we need to have all three parts of the prayer, giving charity before prayer, the actual concentration meditative prayer, and then some Torah study after the prayer. And that's how we transform ourselves, our lives, and our possessions to be a physical vessel subordinate to God's presence. Okay, let's go to the last topic. Pada B'Shalom, redeemed in peace of the 19th of Kislev, the Alter Rebbe. And with all this, we can now return to the verse in Psalms that the Alter Rebbe recited in prison on the 19th of Kislev, which led to his redemption, and to what the Talmud explains about this verse. So let's refresh it. This indeed, I quote you from the letter of the Alter Rebbe, This indeed must be made known that on the day God made for us the 19th of Kislev, and he goes on to say, While I was reading in the book of Psalms the verse, He redeemed my soul in peace. Before beginning the following verse, I emerged in peace by the act of the God of peace. So clearly he says that was the verse, Padab Shalom, that concept of the peaceful transformation, redemption, that led to his redemption. Let's just remind us of what the Talmud says about this. It is written, He redeemed my soul with peace from the battle that came upon me because of the many people who were with me. Rabbi Nachman interprets this not as David speaking about himself and, of, uh, and, and his redemption, but as God speaking to the Jewish people. And what does God say? The Holy One, blessed be He, says, Anyone who engages in Torah study and in acts of kindness and prays with the congregation, I ascribe to Him as if He redeemed me and my children from among the nations of the world. Now let's understand this. The reason why the redemption of the Alter Rebbe came about specifically through He redeemed my soul in peace is because Chabad Hasidus is all about bringing an absolute subordination to God in our physical lives, which is all about the peace and its unity of two opposites, space and beyond space, which is brought about first and foremost through our working a peace within ourselves, between our godly soul and our animalistic soul. And this is between our, you know, higher selfless self, a spiritual self, and our lower selfish physical self. And this is why the Talmud connects this redemption through the services that are called, I quote to you from Ethics of Our Fathers, the pillars of the world upon which the world stands, Torah study, service, prayer, and acts of kindness, charity. And the primary peace service among these three itself is the physical act of kindness, charity. So there you go. Now we understand what this is really all about. Life is about being a physical human being, having to have all the physical needs, the physical drives, the physical functions, and to be able to subordinate our ego our selfishness, my space, I, I want what I want, it's me, my self-reliance, 
and to go ahead and to subordinate and transform that into the selfless paradigm of our godly soul. And that is where we have the true concept of a divine being having a human experience. And that is what it's all about. In closing, the peaceful battle. In closing, we can now deal with the opening modern issue of this lecture. How can we acquire a peaceful redemption from our enemy within ourselves and from the enemy outside of ourselves by transforming the enemy from inside out? That is what we're looking to acquire and how to do it on a practical, practical level. So I'm going to share with you. The Baal Shem Tov has an amazing life-altering teaching upon the verse in Exodus. What does the verse in Exodus say? If you see your enemy's donkey lying under its burden, would you refrain from helping him? You shall surely help along with him. Now, I'm going to read to you what the Baal Shem Tov's teaching on this verse is. The simple concept is simple. It's a donkey. I see it's buckled under its load. And it's laying down, and it's my enemy. So I'm like, why would I help him? No, surely help you shall help him. Now, we're going to divide the verse into pieces and explain it according to the Baal Shem Tov. When you will see a donkey, when you look closely at your material, so the word for Hebrew donkey is chamor. The word for material is chomer. So we're talking about the body. When we look at our chomer, our material, you will see your hater. It hates you. Why? He hates the soul that misses and yearns for divinity and spirituality. The animalistic soul, the body and all its drives is into YOLO mode. You only live once. I want what I want. I want to enjoy life. I want to have pleasure. I want to have many, many toys. I want to have power, fame, beauty. And what are you saying? Your godly soul is saying, no, 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 no. It's all about spirituality. We are divine beings. And you will see that he is lying under his burden. What does that mean that he's laying under his burden? That God gave to the body to refine itself through Torah and mitzvot. However, the body is lazy in their existence. And perhaps, and therefore, it's laying under it. It just can't. It can't get itself to wake up on time to do prayers and to go ahead and, and, and do the kosher stuff and do the Shabbat stuff. It's just too hard. It's just like, I can't do this. Perhaps it will come to your heart and you will cease from helping him. Why? Because he's your enemy. What does that mean? That he could fulfill his mission, but instead you will start an ascetism, the hard work of breaking self-affliction, to break its coarse material. Since the material body interferes with work, it must be broken, you say to yourself. It's my enemy. I'm not here to work with it. I'm here to break it and get it out of my way. Goes on to Balshentov and says, this is not the way the light of the Torah will dwell in within you. Rather, only through... Help, you shall surely help with him. What does that mean? To refine the body and to purify it and not to break it with self-affliction. That is the teaching of the Baal Shem Tov. Now, the Baal Shem Tov is teaching us that we must not hate or break our character traits even if they are character defects. The ultimate goal is the service of King Solomon, the peaceful battle, in which we find compassion for our shortcomings and character defects, rather than breaking them. Let us attract them to a higher goal and purpose, slowly transforming them into our greatest assets. For in the final analysis, it is precisely our coarse character traits, defects, through their transformation, that becomes the ultimate dwelling abode for God in our lives. I want to just close this up with this most practical, practical application. So my friends, your animalistic soul is not bad. It's basically a child who's being forced to go to school. The child's not bad, but the child is boring. I want to have excitement. I want to have pleasure. Well, let me tell you what our job is. Our job is 
to create and find pleasure in our Judaism. Make things exciting. Stop with the attitude that, okay, I'm going to go to shul now. I'm, I have to go and I'm going to just do it and, and I'm going to just get through it. And, no, make it exciting. Make sure that your shul is not just about prayer. Make it about community. Make it about family. Make it about interaction. And even with your prayers, don't get so serious and solemn. Rejoice. Feel like you're talking to an all-powerful father who got your back covered. And the same with Torah study. And the same with kosher food. And the same with your Friday night Shabbat meal. Make it enjoyable. Make it exciting. Make your Passover Seder something beautiful that the kids look forward to. Give out special Shabbat treats, special Passover treats. Don't allow yourself or your child to grow up saying, Oh, those Passover Seders. Uncle Lenny would just go on and on and on and on. No. Make it something they remember with a smile. Get them involved in the preparation. That's what we're learning here. Transformation of our inner child. Get him to enjoy your goal, purpose, and dedication in life. Shabbat Shalom.